Good morning, El Paso Bawa Church. Good morning. It's good to see you guys here. And uh, you probably can't see me. Can you? Yeah, you can. All right. You know, Pastor Josh, it makes some uh, hydraulic lifts for pulpits, too. They, they can make them short. <laughs> really. It's an, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm not standing on the box. It's a loss of, it's an awesome piece of furniture for sure um, for a tall person, right? Um, I do have to make, uh, just mention a couple things that are on your bulletin. Uh, in the middle section, it says ministry meeting, and that is uh, for women only. It's a women's ministry meeting. I just forgot to add the uh, women to it. Uh, but if you turn on the page to where you have the different departments, uh, you will see that there is a ministry meeting under the women's section. Uh, that is October 21st. I think that's next Saturday at 10 a.m. in the other building. And uh, so I think that was the only thing I wanted to mention. Uh, another thing that is in the front of the bulletin is this trunk or treat uh, thing. Uh, we do have, I have like 150 flyers out there or postcard flyers uh, for you to take some and maybe just drop off at your favorite coffee shop if you go to a coffee shop um, or uh, just share with friends. Um, there's also a, a sign-up sheet there that I have in the, in the lobby where you can write your name. And if uh, you can't make it, maybe you could donate some candies. Um, or maybe you want to donate candies and you want to come and open your trunk. So you could just do a check mark there if you would. And uh, I think that's, that's it as far as announcements go. Um, all, the, all the other uh, ministries are ongoing. Uh, women's Bible study, uh, young adults Bible study, Sundays at 6 p.m. If you are a young adult. That is, you're no longer able to come to youth group, uh, but you're not technically a, I was going to say real adult. I guess you're still an adult. You're just younger. You're on the younger side. Um, young adults meet in the new building as well, or in building B, every Sunday at 6 p.m., along with youth group at 6 p.m. So um, I think that, that's it for announcements. I'll be reading uh, today for a scripture reading, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." Um, we'll pray and then we'll uh, have a time of worship. Uh, Father, we thank you this morning for allowing us to come together as your body and worship you and be encouraged by the teaching of your word. And we ask that we may accomplish this, that we would be able to bring glory to your name and praise your name and make you famous through the songs that we sing. We also pray that you would encourage us through them and encourage us through the teaching of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you now stand with us for a time of worship?
Shout out. 
Praise God, 
to this pulpit. It's perfect. Anyway, I'm up here about 95% of the time, so I built an adjustable one for the other 5%, but this is right where it needs to be. Uh, children, you guys can go to Children's Church. Uh, I think uh, Explorers over here, is that right? And Adventurers through the back. Um, just follow the crowd. If you go the wrong spot, we'll sort you out. It's okay. And by the way, a young adult is a uh, Jacob was wondering how he should define young adult. Basically, if you consider yourself a young adult, you can go. Is that, that okay? Is that subjective enough? 
It's been a long time since I considered myself a young adult, but other people have had a different perception. We don't care how other people feel about you, but if you are young in your own mind, I guess you can come, all right? That okay? Everybody okay? All right. One other comment I want to make, we're, we're trying to get ahead of announcements when we reinitiate ministries that we kind of stopped, um, and one of those, is, for a variety of reasons, uh, during COVID even still, I think is when we stopped doing this, was our men's breakfast. And our men's breakfast uh, is going to re-initiate on January 6th um, of, of 2024. So we're trying to get ahead of that plan. So put that on your calendar. Um, we'll, details will emerge as we get closer, uh, but that is intended to be monthly. And the Lord has provided, um, ideally, what I've always wanted was somebody else to cook the breakfast, and I'll do the teaching. And so that's how that's going to go, and that's what I was waiting for to be quite honest. So, uh, the Lord hath provided in the King Jameseth Englisheth that scenario. So, there we are. Uh, so, put that on your calendar. Um, and also, one other thing for me personally is that I, I think I posted this on our social media accounts, but if you would like to participate in a time of testimony um, in November, we have a focus on thanks, of course, in and I want to provide opportunity for the church to be blessed by your testimony, which is not something we, we do a whole lot in the worship service. So I want to make that available to you just a couple minutes. It can be as short as you want it to be. It cannot be as long as you want it to be. But it can be as short as you want it to be. Does that make sense? Maybe a couple, three minutes. Four, that doesn't sound like a long time until you're up here hemming and hawing. Uh, three to five minutes is a long time to stand there without words to say, right? Three to five seconds is a long time once you, when you start doing it. Anyway, so those are two things that I want to bring up uh, before we begin. Uh, so do that and think about, pray about what you'd like to give testimony of uh, in that service coming up in a month and a half or a month now, I guess. Uh, but let's pray. We have things to pray for, and so we ought to pray together. Uh, Father, we do thank you for the gift of life that we have in your Son today, by grace, through faith, alone, in your Son alone, and the benefits that it provides to us, um, the things that it creates in us and creates us to be, as we're looking at here in your Word today. And uh, Father, we thank you for the comfort of being those who are in a in a, a covenant relationship with you that you have made promises to that you will not break uh, and have never broken. And Father, with that in mind, we remember uh, your covenant nation, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, as represented today, I think we can say by the, the nation of Israel. And Father, we, there's a lot of walking on eggshells around this. We don't don't do that, Father. We, we pray for the ability and the resolve to execute supernatural levels of violence against their enemies and to succeed and to conquer and to have victory uh, against their enemies and to drive them out before them, as your word says, like hornets. We pray for that without apology this morning. I pray your blessing on those efforts and pray for continued support by our nation, Father. If for no other reason than to embrace the blessing that goes back to Abraham, that you will bless those who bless him. 
And Father, we thank you for that. We pray for our time in your word today, uh, that it would be, uh, that we would approach it with wisdom and discernment and understanding that your word would be fruitful in our lives. And we thank you uh, that you have provided it to us. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about growing in grace. Growing in grace, uh, that uh, at one time we actually had some, you know, little signage around, uh, talked about the nature of growing in grace here at El Paso Bible. That's really what Second Peter, I think, is about. People get lost in the weeds in Second Peter because, um, for one thing, they don't understand it, um, and they don't even, about half the people you run into don't even think Peter wrote it, which we talked about that last week. I have no problem with Peter talking to a whole different audience um, and using different themes and different vocabulary. I do that a lot because it's what is appropriate. Yeah? Yes? There was a time here where for a couple of months I was teaching the youth group. Now, the youth group may not have noticed, but I talk differently to them than I do to crotchety old men because I'm closer to being the crotchety old man. We talk to them. I talk to people in, the, in certain parts of the hill country of Texas a little differently than I talk to the Yankees in my Ph.D. cohort. We used to have one not Yankee. They're all Yankees. We talk a little differently. Talk a little differently when I'm mad. So I don't have a problem with Peter talking a little differently to a different audience. No problem. But he's telling us how to grow in grace. And so that's the rubric, right? utilizing all of the things that God has given us through Christ in faith for life and godliness. Everything that's pertaining to life and godliness that we have received, we have them, we possess them. It is not a process in a a sense. There is a process involved, right? But we possess those things. The process is not in receiving them. The process is in utilizing them. Uh, And we have these things, they're perfectly kept for us by Jesus Christ. All of the promises that he's given, we have in him. And that the goal of that is not simply to appreciate that Christ is faithful to his promises, but to understand that he has a purpose in keeping all of those promises. And that is not simply that we would be uh, at our current status quo, but happy. Right? Right? It's not just to fulfill you in your perfect context right now and just to make sure that you, right? In your personal relationships, that's the level of satisfaction that you're looking for most of the time. Have you ever thought about that? I just want people to do what they say they're going to do. Yeah? Right now we're interviewing for a part-time staff position. And this is a repetitive problem these days. We're interviewing for a part-time staff position. We get some really solid resumes, and they don't show up. They just don't show up, even though they said they were going to show up. And we're not talking about being five minutes late. We're talking about ghosts. They just don't show up. I would be happy if someone would just be a warm body in front of me and do what they said they were going to do in that situation, that's okay. Isn't that, that's the bare minimum standard, right? It seems to have become exceptional in our country in the last few years 
for people to do what they said they're going to do. Now, there's all sorts of rabbit trails we could do, but that's not all that you're supposed to do with these promises that Christ has given you. He's not simply waiting for you to sit there and enjoy being the recipient of the things that he promised you. He wants us to become active partners and participants in his divine nature, in the purpose that he has in his ministry, in his work, in his vocation, and we're supposed to become participants with him in it. I say that because it's important that we understand there's some truth in Scripture that the only application for it that is possible is to simply appreciate it. Your identity in Christ is like that. Some people will tell you, right, that you you can't take advantage of God's grace. They have a different definition of grace than I do. They do. The only thing you can do as a lost person is to take advantage of God's grace. That's the only way that works. That's the only way the stream flows. When we're talking about making a lost person dead in their trespasses and sins, alive in Christ, there is simply nothing to do, nothing to do, but to receive it, take advantage of it. It's a gift. You should continue to appreciate that. You should continue to understand that. You should continue to demarcate between that, your identity, and what Christ has asked for you to do. The one doesn't affect the other. Your identity in Christ is secure. It was a perfect and complete gift. But the truth that we're talking about in 2 Peter has an I-N-G after it, doesn't it? Growing. Now you may not be grammarians. Anybody want to jump out here and tell me about being a grammarian? You guys, if I see somebody slinking all the way down in their pew, I'll know that's who it is. They don't want to be asked this kind of question. Growing means that in English, anyway, that's a process. In Greek, it would be a participle, a verbal noun, growing. You didn't grow. You haven't grown in grace. You're growing in grace. There's a process here. There's things that we're supposed to do. So, yes, we need to appreciate that God has provided these things, but that's not the only application to them, that there is something to put into practice. And here it is. He says, now, for this very reason also, the reason being that we've received everything that we, we need pertaining to life and godliness in Christ by faith, we've received all of those things, For that reason, in verse 5 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, applying all diligence, the idea there is to hasten towards something, to run after it. I don't see too many ice cream trucks floating around the neighborhoods these days, do you? I always used to mention that I really wish we just had a steak truck going around in this. Around lunchtime, I want a steak truck, I don't need ice cream. But when I was a kid, every kid on my street would chase that ice cream truck down the road. They didn't have any money, the poor ice cream guy. They didn't have any money, but they wanted him to stop so they could drool over the ice cream for all of the parents to say, we have ice cream at home. Sad face. 
we have ice cream at home. It might have been Bluebell, way better than what was in the ice cream truck, but it wasn't in the ice cream truck, right? We hastened towards it. We were eager for it. We really wanted That's the idea. Applying all diligence in this process, knowing that you possess it, right? You're not supposed to wear yourself out. You don't increase the RPM not knowing what the goal is or what the supply is. No matter how many amps you pull through the circuit, there's plenty of supply. My son's an electrician. We've had to do some calculations here lately. You cannot draw too many amps from the things that God has given you. Does that speak to some of you? I don't know. It speaks to me because I use tools that were made before my grandfather was born in my shop, and they draw a, a full American load of electricity. Can I say that? They take a circuit that requires some serious juice to power those 100-year-old motors, some of them. Still using the original ones, most cases. You can't, you can't overtax the circuit. So you need to be eager. You need to be running after that situation with all diligence. Now here's the imperative. Well, actually, in your faith, that's you, the faith that is like the apostles have, that is indistinguishable from them, from Peter himself, who says, I'm bondservant first, I'm slave first, do loss, and then apostle. That's my role, my vocation in this world. Jesus Christ is entirely sovereign over my life, the decisions that I make, the trajectory I take, and the suffering that I receive. Important not to forget that part. In your faith... Supply. Supply something. Now, some people are foolish enough to say that it is simply your faith that supplies everything and that you don't need to do anything in life. That is one narrow meaning, right? There is nothing lacking in your identity in Christ. Your faith provides absolute perfection in your identity in Christ. It guarantees your glorification in Christ. Guarantees it. Right? The answer is yes. Just nod your heads. The answer is yes. Are you glorified now? No. I mean, y'all are pretty and stuff. But you're not glorified. I'm not glorified. You can look at my hands and my face and know that I'm not in new creation state yet. My knees have been telling me I'm not glorified yet. Y'all, anybody with me? Lately, this is about what we're supposed to do now. What are we supposed to do? What's our vocation? How are we supposed to grow in the grace that we've received in our faith? He says supply. Now, some people will argue that. Everything, everything that you have is supplied by faith. That's true. But what is the nature, what is the nature of a gift? Christ is a perfect giver of good gifts, is he not? See, when I was a kid, before we got everything was racist, we used to call some things Indian givers, right? I'm kind of an Indian, so I can get away with it. We can't even say Indian anymore. Indigenous American. 
I'm an Appalachian American of German, French, and redneck descent with some native indigenous American tossed in. Enough that the federal government should have offered me all sorts of things, but I didn't apply for them. So I can say Indian giver if I want. Just try to stop me. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it's referring to a context in which giving a gift had a different definition than it does in the Bible, or you could just kind of take it back. Oddly enough, over the years, we've had a couple of people walk to it we would normally refer to as panhandlers. And uh, they would ask for food, and we would offer them food. Then they would refuse the food. Happens a lot. It's just part of the shtick. We would, then they would demand money. And a couple of times, someone has gone further than that and has said, I gave money to this church. This happened fairly recently, and I demand it back. And Pastor so-and-so said I could do this. Pastor so-and-so does not exist. There haven't been that many pastors at this church in 50 years. I know their names. And I was supposedly the pastor when this happened, so it didn't happen, right? Or she's confused. Understand, I'm not, y'all don't need to know this. This is an illustration. You give something to somebody, it's theirs, right? But people act like when Christ gives us something, it's still Christ's. It's not. I mean, he still possesses all of those things intrinsically in himself, in his godness, in his divinity, in his perfection. But when he gives it to you, who has it? I do. You do. I actually have everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so, when Peter says, supply these things, that's legitimate because you have choices to make in how you exercise the good things that Christ has given to you. He is not saying produce it, create it out of nothing. Ex nihilo, we talk about bara, the Hebrew word create in the Old Testament can mean simply make something out of nothing like God did. That's not. That's not the description. But to take something in your possession and apply it in a certain way and do it eagerly. Do it eagerly. Supply it. Normally it means supply at your own expense. You possess it. You make a decision how to use it. In your faith, do that. That's your identity, the thing that gave you all those things in the first place. Now wisely choose to supply them. He gave it to you. We don't produce them, but we do supply them. So now there's a list. A list. And none of it, none of it is money. I get lumped in with a lot of, a lot of people that talk a lot about money. The church needs money. I'm not saying like right now, but in general. As a general principle, um, the electric company does not give us electricity for free. If you want toilets that flush, the water company doesn't give us water for free. You know, it doesn't happen. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. 
Supply something that God has given you through Christ. Supply arate. Moral excellence, my NASB says. I think you actually can drop... I think moral excellence is actually too narrow. You need to understand, like in the Greek language, everything was about moral excellence for them. You were not a complete man if you did not engage moral excellence, but that meant much more than, than biblically what you think of as morality. It meant being a Renaissance man, essentially. It meant being good at as many hum- things as you could humanly possible be, possibly be and being excellent in um, all of them. As opposed to me, who specializes in mediocrity and a wide breadth of things, right? <laughs> I joke about that. But I do a lot of different things, and I do them acceptably well. But he is talking about excellence in general, right? And this is a real problem that we have often in the church. We say, this is for the Lord, it will be good enough. That shouldn't be the way it goes, guys. Excellent is the goal. Excellent is subjective, right? To some degree. It depends on your context. You could talk about, uh, we could talk about sports, right? Yes? How good of a male athlete do you have to be to be an incredible female athlete all of a sudden? Not that good. You could be, frankly, a pretty bad, mediocre, in, in many of the sports, lifting, even track and field, things like that. I think there are some. I guess you could probably not be quite as competitive at Olympic badminton on a women's team, right? Maybe. I don't know. Is there a, is there a distinct advantage gender-wise in badminton? I don't know. Never seen it done. You know why? Because whoever wins it, it's like the Chinese win that one. The Chinese are not confused on this point, by the way. The commies are, are clear on this one. We're the ones that have the problem. But it could be subjective. The way we define excellence, right? A six-year-old virtuoso pianist is still supposed to get better, is he not? You would expect that if he's incredible at six years old, if he's diligent, continues to progress, that he would be incredible at 25 or 30. Such is not always the case, actually. But it's a reasonable expectation. So essentially the idea is the best that you have right now, the best that you know right now, and a willingness to do the best that you can and have. That's actually foundational to our, our ministry philosophy here at El Paso Bible Church. Um, I've mentioned before, we have an extremely high rate of participation in ministry here at El Paso Bible Church compared to almost any church I've ever been in. Extremely high. Most churches I have been in, a part of, you could find eight out of ten people that are doing nothing but making a dent in the pew. At least. 
We don't have that problem. But we, we do ask people to do the best that they can with what they have in the moment to the best of their ability to make the wisest decisions that they can make. And occasionally that's a problem for people. Occasionally that's a problem. I don't know how that can be a problem. I'm not sure what process is going through somebody's mind to argue with that principle. But in case that's going through your mind, because most people want to hold me accountable for what the Lord is doing in somebody else's life and serving the church. And listen, I have some responsibility to that, but I'm not going to crack a whip over you. I'm not going to shoehorn you into an area of service that you don't want to serve in. I'm not going to do that because you will not stand before me at the Bema seat, and I won't stand before you either. You'll stand before the Lord, and I have that ahead of me, and you have that ahead of you. But, I mean, occasionally it happens, right? It's actually happened somewhat recently, (laughs) although I only hear, by the way, don't be a chicken. If you have a problem with something like this, come and tell me about it, because third or fourth or fifth hand, this is how I hear most things. Someone left and said, we just aren't pursuing excellence in certain couple of areas. Well, that was a load of cheap chicken bologna anyway, because we always pursue excellence in context, the best of what we have, the best giftedness, and the willing participants. The people argue that we weren't pursuing excellence, but you know what was missing from the equation? Always. 100% did not volunteer to participate in the solution. You know what that is? It ain't church that just defines it this way. It's everybody that has a brain functioning, a head on their shoulders. That is whining. That is whining. If you are not willing to be a part of the solution, keep your mouth shut about the problems you see to be frank. Got it? All right. I mean, I'm not talking to you guys personally. I don't know anybody who's doing that right now, but let's just keep that on the table. The time to address future problems is before they exist, right? Yes? Okay, so that's the standard. With diligence, we are supplying excellence to the best of our ability, contextually, subjectively, with what we have, doing the best that we can wisely the resources that we have. And also, don't be a chicken. Don't be a whiner. Don't be a whiny chicken. Three categories, I guess, possible there. Now, excellence is first. That's interesting. He says, supply in your faith moral excellence or excellence, and in your excellence knowledge. That order is particular. In other words, all of you have some knowledge right now, right? You have some knowledge of what you're supposed to do in this life? Every once in a while, I'm, I run into somebody who has no idea what they, they'll claim to have no idea what they're supposed to do, but they haven't even married and have children. I'm like, that's a good start because the Bible's very clear about what you have to do there. You do know what to do in your life. But the order is important because the basis for obtaining more knowledge is actually failure. Yeah? No? I mean, it could be some success, right? 
But I don't have to be Solomon the wise to tell you that you learn far more when you fail than when you succeed. And you can't fail if you're not doing anything. So Peter says, go do the best that you can so that you can learn the lessons through failure or success to advance your knowledge and to grow. That list is important and it's strategic in the way that it's set up. You have to do things. So in your excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control. Y'all know that I ha- I, I'm, I'm informally self-diagnosed with massive quantities of adult ADD. This is a hard one for me. I have 1,600 projects that are 90% done floating around in my life, I think, last time I counted I know I'm not probably completely alone, but I probably excel in that level of mediocrity among my peers. Here's the thing. You can learn lessons faster than you can implement them sometimes. Right? Yeah? So you've heard the old joke, right? If we want to move the piano from here to over there, It's a pastor's joke. That's a 10-year process because we've got to move it half an inch a Sunday. You may have learned where the piano needs to go. It's a joke, but this applies all sorts of things. But self-control says it's an aspect of wisdom that I can't necessarily do everything that I know needs to be done like that. Self-control says I may have learned the lesson, but I can't implement the lesson, and neither can you, by the way. And self-control also says that I'm going to moderate my demands of somebody else doing that. Self-control. By the way, you're supposed to insert supply. These are all things you're supplying. You're not producing, but you've received as a gift, and now you're supplying Self-control, perseverance. Not to prove that you're going to heaven when you die. That's somebody's questionable theological principle. But you do need perseverance in your life. Because doesn't that sound frustrating? I'm going to do the best I can do. Then I'm going to learn the most I can learn. And then I'm going to learn to control myself because I can't implement all the lessons all at once. Doesn't that sound like a recipe for frustration? Yes? Does to me. And Peter says, stop it. Don't get frustrated. Persevere. Stay doing the best you know, learning the most you can, and being wise in your application, and keep going. Elsewhere, Scripture says, do not grow weary in doing good. Same idea. Persevere. And be diligent and continue to hasten and be eager to do these things. And to your perseverance, verse 6, godliness. Now when I tell you godliness, there are people in the room, I'm sure, who will hear, be a Pharisee. They will. That's not what it means. That's not what you should jump to. Actually, 
that's the spiritual equivalent of having your mind in the gutter to think that God is telling people to be legalistic. Get your mind out of the spiritual gutter, people. Get it out. When God tells you to be godly, he's saying, emulate me. What is God's primary characteristic with which he engages humanity? Love, you might say hesed in Hebrew, love, gracious love, loyal love, agape, that's here. Grace, giving favor where it may not be fully deserved. Right, we've talked about grace that people probably oversimplify the use of the term in Scripture, but when God supplies it, Your godliness is not to walk around wagging your finger at people. Neither is it to ignore things in which you could help them with. Right? To graciously supply counsel without judgment might fall under graciousness. Right? All right. I think I'm losing some of you. That's a long list. That's okay. Godliness, we should immediately correlate to graciousness in our human relationships. If we're going to be godly towards other people, it is not to bring the hammer down <laughs> and say, give them ultimatums. We're going to crush you or else. It's to be gracious to them. Grace-oriented with each other, giving favor freely even when it's not deserved. Your godliness, brotherly kindness. I remember we always have to define this because i got a lot of boys. And brotherly kindness is body slamming your brother slightly more softly than you want to. Right? Brothers? I grew up in a family where that was, that was agape love, man. I didn't hurt him as bad as I wanted to. I was in that environment, okay? It's how brothers ought to love each other, not how we do love each other. Right? We want to supply this. And to this, agape, love. The whole end of the list, the culmination of the list, it's not something, you don't wake up the next morning after trusting in Christ and know how to love people the way God loves people. This is a matter of growth and growing in grace. He's given you everything you need to do it. Everything, which was last week, if you want to grow in grace, we need to believe that. And I think that's where we, we, we screw up a lot. We don't really believe that God has actually done that through Christ. Do we actually have everything we need? So we can't even go to the list and say, what does God want me to do with those things? And if you go to the list and you don't believe that you have everything you need, then you will fail. You will fail. But we do possess the capacity to love the way God wants us to do. It is achievable and it's necessary. Not to go to heaven when you die, but necessary. Because not everything is about going to heaven when you die, right? 
probably 99% of the Bible isn't about going to heaven when you die. There, and I've explained the, the why for that. I, th- I mean, there's no Bible verse that says this is why less than 1% of the Bible is about going to heaven when you die. The reason is, is because it has to be simple enough for the natural man to comprehend without benefit of the Spirit. Right? You're a believer in Jesus Christ. So you can understand God has given you the ability to comprehend what it means to be godly and gracious and what it means to love people like God wants you to love people. So I can have that expectation with you who are believers in Christ because the Holy Spirit is supernaturally ministering in your life to offer you discernment. But if I go to the person who is dead in their trespasses and sins, they need to be able to comprehend a very simple truth that Jesus said, the most simply, he who believes in me has eternal life. That is not what we would call a spiritual truth in the sense of truths that are to be taught to believers. What Paul says about the pneumaticos believer, the spiritual believer, who is appraised by no one but appraises all things. There's an extreme level of discernment as a spiritual believer. So if you make all 66 books about the, in the Bible about going to heaven when you die, you have screwed Scripture up badly. So don't do it. Don't do it. Some of you are looking at me like I'm not supposed to tell you to not screw up Scripture. Is that not my job? Don't screw up the Bible. Don't. Don't make simple things hard. There are hard things. Peter's going to admit to that here. There are hard things to understand in the Bible. That's without us screwing it up. That's taking it as it's written, the way the author intended it, the way that God revealed it, it's still hard. So let's wait for those things to make it hard. But he says this, so the list is done. Here's the application. This is why you want to do it, because it sounds hard. If these qualities are yours, qualification one, are they yours, believers? They are yours. That's not the only qualification. If they are yours and are increasing, yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's literarily, that's what we call litotus. Litotus is when you affirm the negative. This is the technical description, right? You affirm the negative to emphasize the positive. My grandmother was excellent at this, the German housewife. When she loved something, loved it, loved it. Highest praise from Grandma Bertha Meyer. That's not bad. My kids do this to me all the time now that I have revealed that truth about the way my grandmother praised the most fabulous dessert that she would ever put in her mouth in her whole life. That's not bad. Very German, huh? Very housewife. Very German housewife. That's not bad. It means it was incredible. 
Awesome. So if these things are yours and are increasing, if we understand the literary device, we're to say you will be far from useless and you will be extremely fruitful. Extremely fruitful. Useful. Right, the floating around the internet is that picture of the, a wooden hammer. Not a mallet, a hammer, like a claw hammer. And underneath it says, just because you're unique doesn't mean you're useful. It's like a fork with one bent tine on it. You don't look like the other forks, but that doesn't mean you're useful. Everybody wants to try to be unique out there. Pastoral ministry and their church, and they're done. That doesn't make you useful. Scripture tells us how to be useful and fruitful. And oddly enough, it's largely the same thing <laughs> for us all. To take what we've been given and to apply it this way. It's a tremendous truth. You know, my, my wife's grandfather used to pop up with an electric hammer. You, ever, you have a guy that ever made an electric hammer in your life? He literally just glued a lampshade cord into the bottom of a wooden handle hammer and said, look, it's my electric hammer. He would come and say, you want to see my new chainsaw? Well, he took a hacksaw blade and glued a few links of chain to it. You know, like you would chain up, well, we can't chain up our dogs anymore. Like you would chain up an animal with that or a boat or something. That's my chainsaw. Useless. Legitimately useless. Now, understand this. This scripture teaches something that a lot of people find offensive. But I find tremendous. Tremendous grace from God. And that is that someone who is legitimately identified with Christ simply by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ alone, can live his whole life and be useless. Why is that such a tremendous truth? Is that really hard? You don't have to do anything. You are justified by grace through faith. It is a free gift of God. The free gift of God. And you possess it perfectly on the basis of grace received by the instrument of faith in your life period, and it is not dependent on your usefulness. Now, your joy and happiness in life might be somewhat, because the corollary to that is that every legitimate child of God is disciplined, because he loves all of his children. And discipline is unpleasant. It's not modern discipline which is almost not disciplined, biblically speaking. You can legitimately possess the same faith as the apostles possessed. And that's the key right here. You want to argue that any of those apostles weren't believers? Anyone's writing Scripture? We're not believers? Any of them not secure 
be useless. And you may say, well, it doesn't say that. It does say that. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. It does say that. It explicitly says that, that you have a problem. The problem is not that your identity is now missing. The problem is that you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten what Christ has done for you. You have forgotten the benefits and the blessings of it that legitimately are applied to your life. You've forgotten those things. That's not an identity problem. I told you that I legitimately didn't know who I was as a young child, right? Legitimately didn't know who my parents were. I got hit by a car, went into a coma for I don't know how long, woke up, didn't know the names of colors or my mom and dad or myself. Guess who I was? Me. I was me. Didn't know who I was, but I was me. DNA proved it. Still had my social security number. Even the federal government said me was me. And if they can get it right, for Pete's sake, man, why shouldn't I be able to get it right? What did I need to be reminded of my identity? That is what they need. People who lack these activities, they're blind, they're short-sighted, they've forgotten, they have a memory problem, and they're useless. Now, parents, listen, you don't want to admit this because it's not considered gentle. But I think you all have to agree that there's a point at which your children become useful. I didn't hear any amens, and I know it's true, you bunch of liars. There is a point at which your children begin producing things, and you go, oh, praise God. Praise Jesus that that didn't go on that way forever. You love your children, and you pour everything you can into them for as many years as it takes, but by golly, you recognize the blessing that it is when they become fruitful. But they were always your children. They were always your children, are, will always be your children, always. As they become useful. But here's what we need to take away, and we'll end with this, right? We have everything. We possess everything that we need for life and for godliness. And if we're unfruitful or useless... That is our fault. And we need to own that. That's our fault. It's my fault. And I say that as somebody who would recognize substantial portions of my life in which I was not good for much. We do have everything we need. Today we need to do the best we can that we know so that we can fail, so that we can learn the lessons that we need to learn, so that we can grow self-control, perseverance, Brotherly kindness, I probably missed one in there. <laughs> so that we can grow. And we need to own that. But it's not God's fault. He's given us everything we need. It's not Pastor Josh's fault because Pastor Josh didn't give you anything to start with. 
I can remind you what Christ wants you to do with what he gave you. That's my job. It's not the elder's fault. We, I'm, I go through this list because we get blamed for a lot of it. The pastors, the elders, the deacons. I have not yet gotten to where somebody uh, accused the janitor of preventing them from doing, uh, having spiritual growth, but I'm sure it's happened somewhere. I've been the janitor at a large church back in the day. We got blamed for a lot too. You know, if you mess up the, the evangelical sacrament of coffee time, you get blamed for a lot. And the janitors were in charge of coffee at that church. It's not our fault. We need to own the responsibility individually before the Lord to take what he's given me individually and to apply it diligently because he wants us to be fruitful because being fruitful is joyful. It's enjoyable and provides for blessedness, happiness in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the life that you have given to us that allows us to apply it. That even the things that are difficult, we can comprehend and apply in our lives so that we would live the lives that you would have us live here and now. We thank you for it, and we love you. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. Now would you stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song. Mm-hmm.